This morning we're kicking off a four-week series on the attributes of God that we've titled uh, None Greater. Uh, We stole that title from uh, Matthew Barrett's book, which is uh, a really, really helpful book. I'm going to be borrowing quite a bit from it over the next four weeks, but uh, if you want to go deeper and just kind of challenge yourself and stretch yourself a little bit more, there are going to be some uh, attributes of God that are in here that we don't talk about, and so uh, this would be a really great resource for you to check out. It's challenging, but uh, it's not inaccessible, and uh, I think the effort would be worth it uh, on that. Also, as well, just a few other resources I'll recommend to you that have been helpful for me. Uh, Jen Wilkins, In His Image and None Like Him. Uh, both really accessible, really, really good. If you're in the theological development cohort, you're going to read these uh, for next month's session, so might as well get a head start on that. Uh, And then finally, this book by Nick Tucker, uh, 12 Things That God Can't Do. Again, really accessible, really, really helpful uh, when we're talking about just the attributes of God. And so uh, those will be good resources for you to dive into if you want to go a little bit deeper, and I'll, I'll have those with me after so you can always Uh, come see me after about those as well. Uh, But again, uh, in this series, we're just going to study God's character and who uh, God is. And this is going to be a little bit different from what we normally do. Our normal practice is just to um, work through books of the Bible passage by passage and try to explain what that passage means and what God's saying to us through uh, that specific text. That's called uh, expository or expositional preaching, and we think that making that the vast majority, uh, kind of the meat of our yearly sermon diet, is what's healthiest for our life together as a church. But what we want to do a little bit more of, uh, maybe once or twice a year, is sprinkle in a few topical series like this where we take some time to just focus specifically on some doctrine or teaching or issue that that we can look at with a little bit more of a devoted focus. And so over the next four weeks, I'll be reading some scripture passages. I want to show you where we uh, get these attributes of God from and that we're not just kind of making these things up, that these are biblical. This is the way God reveals himself in his word. Uh, But we won't be walking through those passages like we normally do. Instead, we'll be kind of walking through this series, looking at it through the lens of What is true of God if all that the Bible says about him is true? What does the whole Bible teach us about who God is? And so again, we're we're going to spend the next four weeks just focusing on and thinking about God. Why? Well, because this is what we were made for, and this is what we were saved for. Salvation is not primarily about you getting your sins forgiven so that you can go to heaven when you die. Salvation is about being reconciled and restored to God so that you can know and enjoy and love God forever. The good news of the gospel is not ultimately that we get things or that we get heaven, but that we get God. And so what we want to do over the next four weeks is what brothers and sisters from earlier in the church's history have referred to as contemplation. Uh, We want to get our eyes and our minds and our hearts on God and contemplate Him, meditate on Him, think deeply about who He is and how He's revealed Himself to us. Uh, The psalmist in Psalm 27.4, he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, to meditate in His temple. And so that's what we want to do. We want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and just meditate on who He is and how He's revealed Himself. We want the psalmist's desire to be our desire. We want God to be the one thing uh, that we're constantly seeking after. 
Uh, But what makes that difficult is that the pressures of our culture and the pressures that we put on ourselves all push us towards the practical. Uh, We, and I said we, not you, we are obsessed with the practical, with what uh, can help me with my marriage and my parenting and my job and my relationships and my life. Uh, And so the thought of spending four weeks talking about really none of that and just talking about God and getting our eyes uh, and our hearts and our minds on God can, can, if we're honest, maybe feel like a little bit of a waste of time. But what I hope to show you over the next four weeks is that contemplating God and getting your heart and your mind fixed on God is really the most practical thing that you can do. Because you and I, we, we become like what we spend our time looking at. You become like what you behold, what you give your time and your energy and your attention to. And so my hope is that spending four weeks gazing on the beauty of the Lord will really uh, provide you and equip you and steal you with some foundational truths about who God is that will uh, be an anchor for your soul no matter what circumstances may come your way. And so uh, let's jump into this together. I'll, I'll read from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 31, and then I'll introduce these first uh, two doctrines, two attributes of God that we'll be talking about together this morning. And so starting uh, in verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 40, uh, the Word of God speaks to us like this. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who's measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scale. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created thee. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray for God's blessing on our time together. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You've revealed Yourself to us in Your Word. God, thank You that You haven't left us in the dark about who You are, that we can truly and really know You. And so God, as we turn our attention to You and talk about You, would You help us to do just that? Would You reveal Yourself to us in this moment with clarity? God, help us to see and believe the truth about who You are. Help, it, help this truth to work its way into our hearts and to be an anchor for our soul. God, please help us to see who You are and to trust You and to contemplate You Give us grace as we do that now. I pray that you would in your name. Amen. And well, many of us are familiar with uh, some of God's attributes like His love and His mercy and His justice and His holiness and His faithfulness, but uh, what we want to talk about for most of this series is some of God's attributes that don't get as much press, that don't show up uh, as often in the paper clippings, but are just as important for understanding who God is. A lot of the ways that God is not like us. And so the first two attributes, the first two doctrines we're talking about this morning uh, are the doctrines of God's simplicity and God's aseity. And look, I know most of you have probably never heard those words before. That's totally okay. Uh, We're all learning together. That's what this time is for. And so uh, let's talk about these. First, the doctrine of God's simplicity. Uh, When we say that God is simple, or when you hear the word simplicity, the opposite of that in this context is not complex. We're not saying God is simple in the sense of He's really easy to understand. I promise you, this doctrine uh, is not that easy to understand. You're going to have to track with me on this. When we say God is simple, the opposite of that is composite. We're saying God is not composite. He's not made up of parts. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith says God is without body, parts, or passions. That's what it means for God to be simple. We'll talk more about what it means for God to be without body and passions next week, but but let's talk first about what it means that God is without parts. Uh, When we say God doesn't have parts, we're saying that God doesn't have all these distinct and different attributes that come together to make up God. We're saying God is His attributes. For example, the Bible does not say that God has love. It says that He is love. Uh, God does not just have justice. He is just. He is justice itself. God doesn't just possess wisdom. He is all-wise. He doesn't just have power. He is all-powerful. He doesn't have truth. He is truth itself. And you see this throughout the Bible. It will describe God in this way. In John 4, Jesus says God is Spirit. In 1 John 1, it says that God is light. Uh, 1 John 4 says God is love. And in 1 John 1, when it says God is light, that means He's all light. He's completely light. It says there's no darkness in Him at all. 
which means that, that God is not like a pie where you've got one slice of love and one slice of mercy and one slice of justice and one slice of holiness that when you put them all together, uh, they make up this pie that we call God. No, God's essence is His attributes and His attributes are His essence. The essential nature of who God is uh, and His character as who He is. And this shows us one of the ways that God is not like us. Because, uh, for example, like, you could cut my arm off, and I would still exist as Ryan, would I not? Like, my arm is a part of me, but it's not the essence of who I am. I don't have to have it to exist as Ryan. It would not be pleasant, uh, it would be very painful, but I could exist without my arm and still uh, exist as Ryan because my arm is just a part of me. Or, or think about how you and I, we can exist and not be wise. We can exist and not be loving. Uh, wisdom and love are not essential to who we are. They're not essential to our existence uh, in the way that, that that is, but that's not the case with God, uh, and that's really good news. Because simplicity means that for God to stop being love, He would have to stop being God because love is not a part of Him. Uh, it's the essence of who He is. For God to stop being holy, He would have to stop being God. For God to stop being just, He would have to stop being God because His attributes, His character are not parts of Him that you could cut off or take away. God is His attributes. They're essential to who He is. He is not God if He's not loving, just, good, wise, holy, and righteous. And He always exists as the fullness of who He is, as loving, good, holy, just, and righteous. The, the doctrine of divine simplicity is an implication of what Isaiah 40 is telling us. Because Isaiah 40 is telling us that God is the Creator. He's not a creature. No one existed before Him. No one put Him together uh, instead, he's the one who's creating and sustaining everything, which is why he says, why would you compare me to an idol? Someone has to make those. Someone has to put those together. Someone has to carry those around. That's not who I am. Verses 13 and 14, he says, no one taught him justice because God is justice itself. No one has ever given God knowledge or an insight that he didn't already have because he's always been eternally all-knowing. He didn't become just or knowing or wise at some point in time. He has just always eternally been those things. And simplicity also means that God is one. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. For God to be one means that His attributes are identical to His essence, to His nature. We can distinguish between His attributes and the way He reveals Himself to us, and so we can talk about God's love and God's holiness and God's justice as if those are different and distinct things, but they're really one and identical to His nature, to the essence of who He is, which means that His justice is a loving justice. His Power is a loving and merciful and good power. His uh, love is a holy and a just and a powerful love. And on and on we could go. And if that's all still really confu confusing, uh, I think Pink Floyd is pretty helpful here. Uh, think of their album cover for The Dark Side of the Moon. And so on their album cover for The Dark Side of the Moon, you've got the prism 
and uh, going into the prism on one side is one singular beam of light. But as it passes through the prism, uh, it then refracts out into all of these different colors. Well, well, that's how it is with God's attributes. God's attributes and His essence, they're really one. It's one singular beam of light. But as He reveals Himself to us, uh, He refracts out His essence so that we can see all of these different colors. His love, His justice, His holiness, His mercy. All of these different things so that we can more truly know Him. Because we have no analogy to God. We've got no person to compare Him with. There's no other simple being in the universe. And so God... Uh, when He reveals Himself, He reveals Himself as if He has parts, as if He has these different and distinct attributes so that we can really come to know Him through coming to know His love and His justice and His holiness and His righteousness and His goodness. And so this is God's simplicity. Why does this matter? What does this do for us? Well, uh, a few things. One, it helps us understand that God gets to define Himself we don't get to define Him. Because God is love itself, uh, we don't get to make up what love is. Our definition of love has to reflect who He is. It has to reflect His character. Because God is just, we don't get to make up our own definition of justice. Our definition of justice has to line up with how He's revealed Himself and His character. Because God is truth itself. There's no such thing as my truth and your truth. There's capital T truth, God Himself. And every other little t truth has to line up with the ways that God has revealed Himself. It has to line up with how He has defined reality. That's why we have to take our cues from God, how He reveals Himself in His Word, and how He defines love and truth and justice, because we don't get to define those things. He does. And then two, another major thing simplicity helps us do is it helps us understand how God is a trinity. Uh, have you ever been confused when we talk about how God is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Uh, it's confusing. It can be confusing. And, and one of the reasons is because He's God, and if we were able to fully comprehend and figure out God, uh, He wouldn't be that big of a God, would He? And so that's one of the reasons it's confusing to understand the Trinity, but another reason that it can often be confusing to understand how God is triune is because we think that when we say God is one and God is three, we're saying those things, uh, we mean those in the exact same way, and so we're just contradicting ourselves. But, but simplicity shows us how God is one. Uh, be the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are each fully God because they all possess the fullness of the divine essence, of what makes God, God. They, they aren't parts of God. They don't each possess 33.3% of the divine nature. Uh, they, each, uh, they each possess the fullness of God's divine nature, of what makes Him God. And there aren't three essences. There aren't three different divine natures. Instead, there are three persons who each possess and share the same divine nature. This is why we can say that the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but yet there aren't three gods. There's only one God because they all share the same divine nature and essence. This means everything that makes God God, Jesus has and is. 
Everything that makes the whole, God God, the Holy Spirit has and is. The way we distinguish between the persons of the Trinity is not by parceling out God's attributes and saying, well, the Father has more power and authority than the Son and the Spirit do, or the Son's the more loving member of the Trinity. No, they each possess the fullness of the divine essence. And so we distinguish the persons relationally. The Son's eternally from the Father. The Spirit's eternally the Spirit of the Father and the Son. Simplicity is why Jesus can tell Philip in John 14, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because they share the same essence. They, they share the same nature. They're the same God. It's why he, Jesus can say in John 10, I and the Father are one. Because they truly are one. And so that's simplicity. Uh, let's talk next about aseity. Uh, what's the doctrine of God's aseity? Well, aseity comes from two Latin words, ase, and it means that God is of himself, that he has life in and of himself. Now, what that means is that God is self-existence, no, self-existent. No one created God. God didn't create himself. He has just always eternally existed. He always has been and always will be who he is. And it means that he has life in himself, the fullness of life in himself. He has no lack. God does not need anything, and he is not dependent on anyone outside of himself. It means he's absolutely perfect and happy in himself. And you see this truth ring out all throughout the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so Genesis 1.1 describes the start and the beginning of everything except God, right? Because if you notice, it does not say in the beginning, God came into existence. It says in the beginning, God created. God did something. And so in the beginning, God was already there. Uh, God does not enter into the world and the story in Genesis 1. He creates the world and the story, which means he exists before the world and the story. The story and the world do not exist without him. It shows us that God always has been and always will be. Or think of the passage that we read in Isaiah 40. It says God created and owns everything. No one's ever taught him something he didn't know. No one's ever given him advice he hadn't considered. No one's ever given him something he did not have. He created and owns everything. And so again, why would you compare him to an idol? He's not like an idol. He's not dependent on others like an idol is. He has life in and of himself. Or think about Exodus 3. Exodus 3 is the story of Moses and the burning bush. Uh, and, and God calls to Moses from the burning bush and tells him that, that God has come down to deliver his people from slavery to Egypt. And so Moses, at, and, and he's sending Moses to be the agent of that deliverance. And so Moses says, okay, well, when they ask who sent me, what am I supposed to tell them? What's your name? And God says, I am that I am, or I am who I am. Tell them that the I am has sent you. And what's interesting about God's response to Moses there is that every other person has to put something on the end of that sentence and define themselves in reference to someone or something outside of themselves. For example, if you were to ask me, who are you? I'm going to have to put some things on the end of that sentence. I'm going to have to say things like, I'm a Christian. I'm a husband to Braylon. I'm a father to Laney. I'm a brother to Logan. I'm the son of Rob and Cheryl. I'm a pastor. I'm a reader. I'm a student. If you were to come to me and say, hey, who are you? And I just said, I am. 
you would say, you are what? No, that's just it. I am. And then you would run, right? Because everybody else has to put something on the end of that sentence is dependent on someone or something outside of themselves to define themselves. But again, that's not the case with God. God is saying, no one outside of me gets to define me. I define me. Exodus 3 is a clear statement of God's aseity, that He has life in and of Himself, that He's always existed, that no one created Him. He did not say that He's the I was, like He's just an old guy in the sky who's been around for a really long time. He says He's the I am, present tense. This is what it means for God to have life in Himself. And and again, that that means that God is self-sufficient. Unlike us, He does not need people or things outside of Himself to define Himself or to depend on. He just is who He is. Now, aseity does two major things for us. One, it shows us that God has fullness of life in Himself as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of aseity is Trinitarian. God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons who share the one divine nature. Father, Son, and Spirit have life in themselves, and God has been utterly perfect and happy and full and blessed in His Trinitarian life for all of eternity. He has fullness of life and joy in His relations as Father, Son, and Spirit from all of eternity. Which leads to the second thing that aseity does for us. It shows us the utter graciousness of God to create us. God is not just a bigger version of us up in the sky. God is the creator and we are creation. It means God is independent and we are dependent. And because God is perfectly full and happy and blessed in His life as Father, Son, and Spirit, He did not create the world because He needed us or because He had some potential that He needed to realize or because He had some lack in Himself that He needed us to fill up. Like, God did not and does not need you. And God would still be God if He never created the world or if He never created you. He is not dependent on you. He is not dependent on His creation. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching to a bunch of pagan philosophers and he says God is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Rather, instead, He's the one that gives life and breath and everything to everyone. In Psalm 50, God rebukes the people of Israel for bringing sacrifices to just check off the box, thinking that's what God wanted from them. And he says, do you think I drink the blood of goats or eat the flesh of bulls? Do you think I need to do that? Do you think you're giving me something that I don't already have? Every animal is mine. The world in all of its fullness is mine. Both of those passages point to the fact that God does not need us, that God did not create to realize potential or to fill up a hole that He had in Himself or to get something that He didn't already have. Which I know at first might sound a little bit kind of off-putting to to hear that God doesn't need you. Maybe that makes God sound a little bit distant and standoffish, but man, this is actually really, really good news. Why? Well, because if God does not need us, That means His creation of us is a gift. If God is not creating us to fill up some hole in Himself, then He's creating us out of the pure joy of love simply so that He can bless us. 
I mean, could you imagine what sort of terrible God he would be if he needed human beings to realize his potential or to fill up some hole that he had in himself? If he was like Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire telling us, you complete me. I mean, could you imagine how much pressure that would put on the job description of being a human being if your job was to complete God, to fill up something that he lacked, to give him something that he didn't already have? The good news is that does not describe our God. God has no lack, which means we can trust that He never lacks the resources to bless us. We never have to worry if He's going to be able to come through for us. We never have to worry if He's going to be able to meet our need. We are not depleting His resources when we come to Him. The the number in the bank account never goes down because the earth in all of its fullness is His. And we can trust that God created us to lavish His goodness on us, that our existence is a gift of God's grace. I love the way James Dolezal puts it. He says, as Sadie shows us that God is near to us as a giver, not as a getter. God is able to freely bless us because He is free, because He's not dependent on us, and because He does not need us. Now, here's why all of this is good news when we turn to the gospel. These doctrines show us both who we are saved by and what we are saved for. First, who we are saved by. All of God, not part of God, saves us. The the work of salvation is Trinitarian. All three persons of the Trinity working to save us. And in Jesus taking on our flesh and coming to die for us, we are not getting JV God or God Junior or God in training. Jesus is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. T.F. Torrance has a quote that I love. He says, there's no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. What that means is that because Father, Son, and Spirit share the same nature, share the same essence of what makes God God, uh, there's not a different God behind Jesus' back that we need to be afraid of. It's not loving and merciful Jesus trying to appease an angry God. No, Romans 5, God the Father demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. They share the same nature, the love and the mercy and the compassion on display in Jesus' ministry. That's God's mercy and love and compassion on display. Michael Reeves says there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. And so if you want to know God, you look at Jesus. You want to know what He is like, you look at Jesus because Jesus is how God has made Himself known. And in Jesus, it's actually God making Himself known. And so these attributes show us who saves us, but they also show us what we're saved into, what we're saved for. Again, salvation is not first and foremost about you getting your sins forgiven so that you can go to heaven when you die. Salvation is about being reconciled to God so that you can enter into the joy of His life. We are saved to be participants in God's life. It's not that we become God. We don't. But 2 Peter 1 says that when Jesus saves us, we get to be partakers of the divine nature. What that means is that what Jesus is by nature, when God saves us, we get to participate in by grace. We are adopted into the family of God, and God the Father becomes our Father. We are united to Jesus the Son, and we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We get to share in Jesus' Sonship and participate in the relationship that He has with the Father. 
We become by grace what He is by nature. We become sons and daughters of God. The fullness of joy and life that God has enjoyed as Father, Son, and Spirit for all of eternity, we get invited into that. We get to participate in that. That's what salvation is about. Real relationship with God. In John 5, Jesus is talking about how just like the Father, He has a saiety. He has life in Himself. And because of that, He can give life to us. And listen to what He says in John 5, 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The whole purpose of Jesus taking on our flesh and coming to live in our place uh, the perfect life of human faithfulness and lay that life down on the cross and then take it back up again in the resurrection to defeat our death and sin is so that we could experience and be restored to God's life. So we could share in the life that we were created to participate in. And so if you want to know where real life is found, if you want eternal life, it's in Jesus. And this means that every command God gives us, He's trying to steer us into His life and away from what will kill us, away from what will lead us to death because He is life itself. And then as well, I'm borrowing from a pastor named Mark Jones here, but as we, uh, as we begin to walk in this life that Jesus offers us, what happens is that we actually begin to grow in simplicity. While we'll never be simple and not made up of parts in the way that God is, there is an analogy that the Bible gives us as to how we can reflect God's simplicity in this life. Uh, in Galatians 5, Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and he calls it the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. But then he goes on to list love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He calls all of those the fruit, singular, of the Spirit, uh, and he does that on purpose. Because as we walk with God and the Spirit bears the life of God in us, as He bears His fruit in us, we begin to look more and more like God. We begin to be people who are characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Those all grow together as the Spirit grows us into the image of Jesus. And when that happens, that's God bearing His life in you. It's transforming you into His image. That's God at work in you, and you should celebrate that. And then finally, aseity and simplicity show us how glorious God's promises are because they're grounded in His character. Again, in Exodus 3, when God comes to Moses and says, I'm sending you because I'm going to deliver this people, Moses says, well, who am I that I should go and lead the people of Israel out of slavery to Egypt? And do you know what God says to him? God does not say, well, Moses, you're smart, you're kind, you're important. You have the best education that the Egyptians could offer. I have done everything possible to set you up for success. You're the perfect person for this job. No, all God says is, but I will be with you. It's as if Moses is saying, God, who am I? And God is saying, Moses, it doesn't really matter who you are. I am, and I will be with you. And that's the God who has chosen to bless us and be with us and show favor to us. And if He is with us, then what do we have to fear? This is why when Paul asked rhetorically in Romans 8, if God's for us, who can be against us? Simplicity shows us that all of God, not part of God, 
is for us. Because you can't divide up God's attributes, if God is for us, He is fully for us. And that means all that He is, He is for us. His wisdom and His love and His power and His goodness and His justice and His holiness are all at work to lavish blessing on us and give us good. He is not going back and forth on whether or not He wants to bless you this week. His love and His justice are not at war within Himself, and we're just kind of waiting on the edge of our seats to find out if you're really going to be saved. No, He's not going to change His mind about you. And so you don't ever have to worry if God has the desire to bless you because He is fully for you in Jesus, but you also don't ever have to worry if He has the resources to bless you. Again, because God does not need you and does not depend on you, you can trust that He doesn't have an angle with you. That there's no sales pitch He's waiting to trot out. That there's no, well, while I've got you here. No, He just wants to lavish goodness and blessing and life and joy and love upon us because that's who He is in and of Himself. He's the fullness of life in and of Himself. Again, this is, this is how we change by getting our eyes and our hearts on the beauty of God and gazing upon Him, meditating on Him, contemplating who He is. And so I want to encourage you and pray these truths into your heart. Contemplate who God is throughout your day. And so that the more you do that day by day, the more you will be steeled to trust Him uh, no matter what may come your way. Because you will, because you begin to look like what you spend your time looking at and what you give yourself to. Let's give ourselves to Him. Let me pray that we would. God, thank You for who You are. Thank You for the ways that that You are not like us. That You're not just a bigger version of us in the sky. Just as flawed and all over the place as we are, God. Thank You that You are the Creator and we are creation. Thank You that You're independent, that You don't need us, that You don't depend on us, that You are so full of life in and of Yourself. God, would You help us to believe that? Would You help us to believe just the utter freeness of Your grace, that You're near to us as a giver and not to get something from us. Help us to believe that You don't have an angle with us. And God, help us to believe that You're for us that the fullness of who you are is, is turned towards us in Jesus. God, would you do that in our hearts and our minds? Would you help us in the rush of lives that are so busy, with so many things to distract us, so many things we need to attend to? God, would you help us to make the psalmist prayer and desire, our prayer and desire, to gaze upon your beauty and to inquire saved us for nothing less, and so I pray you would do it even this week among us. In your name, amen.